I do, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time, Lord. Thank you for uh, the songs we're able to sing. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, Lord, for us. Thank you, Lord, for taking sin and, and destroying it upon the cross. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your Holy Spirit to live within us. I pray, Father, that as we read your word, Lord, that we'll realize what a wonderful gift you've given to us. We'll realize the power that you put inside of us, Lord. And I pray, Father, that as a result of it, uh, we will be people, Lord, who live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 1. I'm going to read through the chapter here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet, yet have, we wait for it patiently. That's where we'll stop in Romans chapter 8. Uh, I have a friend back home in Wisconsin who uh, rebuilds cars. So he 
very wealthy people hired him to take a 57 Chevy or some type of car like that. He would come down south and find one that's not all rusted out, and he'd buy one of those. He'd take it up to Wisconsin, and then he would customize the car to look exactly like whatever the guy wants to look. It would be a one of a kind. He'd put a Viper engine in it. He would he would redefine the shape of it. He would paint it certain colors that no one else has painted it, and then he would sell these cars for three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars. These individuals because Again, they wanted a car that's unlike anything else. They would do it from beginning to end. So Plov and I there were there one day and he took us out to like a like a fifties car hop type place and we went and like it was like a fifty seven Chevy. We hop in the car, I asked him, I'm like, Oh, how much are you selling this for? He goes, I'm just about to deliver it, I'm gonna sell it for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars to the guy. Like, it's incredible. We hop in the car, he hits the gas and he just burns the tires and starts spinning around the, the parking lot and then takes off. He said, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? He goes, this is the way I built it to be driven. He goes, but unfortunately, the guy's not going to drive it the way it's supposed to be driven. And it was interesting. We're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you're doing it. But he knew exactly what he had. Right? He built this thing because this thing can be driven with an incredible amount of power. You can spin out the wheels. You can do all kinds of things. And you and, I, and I'm looking at this thing going, oh, you can't possibly do this. He even knows the owner of it will never drive it. I'm sure he's going to pamper it with a diaper and everything like that. <laughs> but he knew exactly what was inside it and the way it was supposed to be driven. The children of Israel had literally God's presence living in the tabernacle and in the temple. His presence was there for almost over a millennium, right there. And he says, if I'm here with you, I'm going to bless you if you follow my covenant. If you keep your end of the bargain, I'm going to protect you, watch over you, your crops are going to grow, you're going to have to worry about anything or anyone because I'm with you. And what's incredible is we read throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, they're going to go to war, they're going to fight battles, they're going to do all kinds of things, and they lose. And every time they lose, God says to them, why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you ask me? Why didn't you come to me for help? And every time that we see that Israel actually has a king who actually does follow the Lord. I mean, there was a time where they went out to battle, and the king brought the entire choir out before the battle lines, and all they did is they sang. And as they sang, they just watched God decimate the army in front of them. An incredible thing, something that actually happened when they depended on God, who was with them, who was right there, his very presence, he would show himself and display incredible things because he dwelled within Israel. In Romans, we've seen, as we've worked our way through, we've seen that the human condition is horrible. Whether you are a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, it is a hot mess because of sin. We've seen throughout the book of Romans also that even though he gave the law, and if we take something as simple as the Ten Commandments, we can't keep them. Even if we want to, we can't. We've seen also that when we even try to keep the law, it seems like sin keeps getting worse. It seems more and more the restrictions that are placed on me, the more and more things I break, and I find myself in a precarious position because even if I want to do what's right, I find that it's almost impossible to do. But that's where Romans 8 comes in because something unique has happened when Christ came and died on the cross for our sins, when he came and he died and we put our faith and trust in him, something dramatic happened to each and every one of us. But the problem is, for myself and all of us here and everybody everywhere that's a believer, is that we are like that really cool car, that we are not living our life the way it's meant to be lived. At all. If we look back at this morning, we look back at yesterday, we look back at this week, and we look and we say, what was influencing us more, sin or the Holy Spirit, if we're honest, more than likely sin? He says here, let's go to Romans 8, verse 1. 
Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been saved. We don't have to worry about the penalty of sin because there's no condemnation because Christ has paid it in our behalf. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. That word where it says the law of the spirit of life, it's not talking about another law. It's not talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about the influence or the principle or the standard. This Holy Spirit has set me free from sin and death. That's literally what it means. I now, because I have the Spirit of God living within me, I'm now free from those things. Because when I die physically, do I die? No, even if a man dies, yet shall he live. We have eternal life in Christ. So just as certain as I don't have to fear death, I also don't have to fear the power of sin because I have the Holy Spirit living within me. It says this, for what the law, verse 3, what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. We know that. If I give you 10 things to follow, more than likely you're going to fail on those pretty darn quick. And if I tell you, oh, even if you thought about disobeying those, you failed also, well, then we for sure fail. So we find that the law is powerless. Giving ourselves religious things to do, giving ourselves rules to follow is powerless to do anything. Why? Because we have a nature within us that wants to rebel called sin. But what we couldn't do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man, that's why God became man, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. When God sent his son, when God himself came down to earth in the likeness of sinful man, he went so he could pay the penalty for our sin because sin, the only way to deal with it is you got to kill it. you got to kill it. The full penalty has to be paid. When God said to Adam and Eve, in the moment that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. That was a command and something that had to be Fulfilled. So that's why God himself stepped in our place and did that. That's why he came as Christ, as Jesus, and died on the cross for our sins. But when he died, he did something incredible. He condemned sin in sinful man. That's incredible. He literally put the death blow to sin within sinful man. He who knew no sin literally became sin for us. And since he paid that penalty and since he put the death blow to sin, he has made it available for us to no longer be under the power of sin within our own lives. Why do you do that? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Since we couldn't follow it, we need someone to do that for us, and that's what Christ did. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Every time you see Spirit from now on forward, it's the Holy Spirit he's talking about. That's why many of our Bibles, it's going to have a capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit. And if you remember what Kevin read in between the songs, remember what Jesus says to the disciples? Remember, he was kind of alluding to something's going to happen. I'm going to leave. And the disciples are asking, well, where are you going to go? And, and, and when you would think about it, you think, you know, it would be better if Jesus was here right now, wouldn't it? He'd show, he'd heal things. He'd stop the bad weather. He'd push hurricanes away. He'd go into the, the hospitals and heal people. He'd do all kinds of stuff. And Jesus said to the disciples, you know what? It's better that I go. Well, what do you mean? Because when I go, something even better is coming. Really? What's that? My very spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is going to come, and he's going to be with you. He's not even going to be with you. Get this. He's actually going to come and reside inside of you. But no, wouldn't it be better if you stayed here and, and did these healing? No, 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 no. Because when the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, that is your, that's the deposit guaranteeing that you belong to me. That is the very power of God living within you to be able to say no to sin. That is what's going to put sin to death in you. That's what's going to be the very source of life for you. That's what's coming. 
And that is what is actually here and what we have. Verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Is that true? <laughs> if you live according to the sinful nature, you have your mindset on what that nature desires. When you and I are going to watch a movie, when we're going to listen to music, or we're going to look at something online, anything like that, do we want to watch all the good stuff or do we want some of the bad stuff? Well, the bad stuff. Let's let our mind be idle just for a few minutes. And as your mind is idle just for a few minutes, what does it go to? Does it go to all the good and glorious things in this life? Or does it go to all the horrible things in this life? Do fears pop up? Do pains all of a sudden come up? Do, do memories of the past, all these types of things pop up? Yes, why? Because our mind is set on the sinful nature. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit or with the Holy Spirit have their minds set on what the Holy Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. Isn't that the truth? The mind of sinful man is death. Everything about sin leads to something horrible. And at the end of the day, it is what, it is what kills us. The mind of sinful man is death, but... The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. What did Jesus say when the Spirit comes? What do you say about the peace that Jesus gives? I don't give you peace as the world gives, right? Even if it, the, the best peace that we can get in this world that you and I could maybe conceptualize would be no school shootings, no more need to even defend ourselves, no need for there to be militaries and, and, and nuclear armaments and all those types of things. No one's invading anybody else. No one's trying to take advantage of us. Everybody's living in peace and harmony, and things are good. And I mean, that is probably the best example of peace that we could come up with in a perfect world, right? But what's more powerful? How about that you actually have peace in your own heart and life? That's a tough one because we could keep ourselves at bay enough to, uh, to obey and comply out in the outside world hold agreements, things like that, you know, do things on the side where it doesn't upset the whole order. But how about literally having peace in our own heart and life, knowing that we have peace with God, knowing that we've been forgiven of sin, knowing that when we do struggle with things, we can identify exactly what it is that it is sin. And since it's sin, we already know that it's been put to death on the cross. We know that we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us, and he actually gives us his peace. He can give us joy, patience. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. He can remind us of his love for us so we can know that this is not all there is, but we know that we have heaven and eternal life waiting ahead of us. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that nobody else can give, and not even the, the most powerful people, the smartest people in this world can ever do because they cannot take care of what's going on inside of the human heart. Only God can do that. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by uh, the Holy Spirit is life and peace. So then we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to be focused on? Do we want to be influenced by sin? Or do we want to be influenced by the Holy Spirit? See, for you and I, we have an interesting situation going on that the rest of the world doesn't have. The rest of the world is controlled by the sinful nature. They're fully influenced by it. They could still do good things. They could still be nice people. They could still abide by the laws, and we can find them to be incredibly successful and great individuals. But their lives are controlled and they're enslaved by their sinful nature. And they can't help it. 
But you and I have been saved by Christ. The sinful nature has been put to death. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. But now you and I actually have a choice. We're like in the Garden of Eden every day. You can live like this or you can choose that. Don't do that. Do this. Every day. And then it becomes somewhat of a battle within us each and every day. Am I going to live according to the sinful nature or according to the spirit? And here's the sad thing. The sinful nature has been put to death, like I said before. But we are doing everything possible to resurrect that bad boy, to bring him back up so we can follow him instead of just following the Holy Spirit. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Right? If, I, if I'm living according to sinful nature, I'm telling God I'm at war with you. Let's fight. It's like us chest bumping God and saying, bring it every time we sin. It's hostile to God. It does not like God. It hates God. It's opposite him. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But something's different. Verse 9. You. Or in Texan, y'all. <laughs> however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. The Bible says here, if we receive Christ, we have something incredible. We may look like a 57 Chevy, like an old car, but inside of us is something incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful. Not in the power of, of being incredibly successful and doing all these incredible things in this world, but incredibly powerful in being able to be an obedient child of God, living a life of peace, living a life that's holy and separate from the rest of the world, that even in the midst of suffering can have joy, that lives in a way that's different than the rest of the world, that does not have to be controlled by the sinful nature. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So that has to ask, have us ask the question, if my life is punctuated by sin, and if it is controlled by sin, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know that, it is very possible I do not have the Holy Spirit of God. If I don't have the Holy Spirit of God, then I'm not sinned. Then I've never repented. I've never put my faith and trust in Christ. I've never humbled myself and asked him to save me. I may have said a few words, an incantation of a sinner's prayer, but it may not even have been real. You are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, and let's happily assume that Christ is in all of us, that we've all received Christ. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet, your spirit, or some verses will have your, the Holy Spirit, is alive because of righteousness. Yes, we are walking around in a body that is decaying, in a body that has sin. That's why we struggle with it, right? But we have the Holy Spirit of God that's living within us, that is our very life, that is our eternal life living within us too. And there's a war that goes on between those two. And as believers, we know that. Verse 11, 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I mean, when you think about it, the sinful nature is going to do what to our bodies? It's just going to make it deteriorate and die. But what is the Holy Spirit of God doing with it? It's renewing our mind. It's strengthening us. It is. It grows. It, it is new and new each and every day. It's an incredibly powerful thing so that even when we die, it's going to make sure it raises us back up to life. What's more powerful? Anything that raises something from the dead is a heck of a lot more powerful than the very thing that kills. Right? So what we have within us through the Holy Spirit is much more powerful. So do we want to live according to something that destroys us or something that is more powerful? Verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the simple nature to live according to it. This is a tough one, right? So the good news that we find out in this throughout the book of Romans is that regardless of sin, regardless of what is done to the world, the solution God has given through Christ and then the Holy Spirit coming living within us is the ultimate solution, the ultimate remedy. It is already done. When we've received Christ, it is finished. It is done. We have the Spirit of God living within us. We have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. We are saved. We don't have to be afraid. We've been redeemed. Everything for us now is new. We're now a new creation in Christ. Since those things are true, now he says this. You have an obligation. You have a task at hand. And what is that? But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Holy Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Wait a second here. You mean now that I'm saved, I have some work to do? Yeah. What's the part that you and I play in our salvation now, in our Christian life? Our job now is to live according to the Spirit. And when sin brings itself up within our hearts and our minds, what are we supposed to do to it? Kill it. Put it to death. How does the believer put to death sin within their body? How do we kill it? We can't go in and perform surgery. We can't do some religious rite or anything like that for it. How do we kill it? We need to starve it out. We don't feed it. We don't fuel it. We don't resurrect it. We don't bring it back again. We literally starve it out. If the sinful nature is saying, I want you to do this, I would, no, I'm not doing this. I'm following the Holy Spirit. I'm doing what God wants to do. And I'm getting out. If it means I have to remove myself from the situation, I remove myself from the situation. If it means I need to turn it off, I need to turn it off. If it means I need to do something else to avoid it, I avoid it. If it means I need to run, I need to run. If it means I have to change the, the, the place I am, then I need to change where I am. Because everything he's saying about this, we have the ability to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And the thing is, we have help. We have the Spirit of God living within us that gives us the ability to do it. And we also have to identify sin for what it is. Sin now is powerless. It feels like it's powerful, but really we can, wait a second here. What's the facts? The facts are this. Sin is dead. It's powerless. Christ died. It's taken care of. I've been forgiven. But, you know, I maybe I stumbled and I fell and, and, and I, I'm... I'm just a mess, and I'm, I'm a horrible individual. Whoa, whoa, wait a second here. If we confess our sins, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all that, the way that's stated, it means he keeps on cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning. So God's always going to forgive. God is going to cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. So now I, not only do I have to make sure I starve this thing up, but now even when I fall into it, I know that I have God himself who's willing there to forgive and to cleanse. Forgive and to cleanse. And sometimes, just as kids, right, we, they, they go, they play in the mud, we go, we give them a bath, and what happens? They go right back to the mud, and what do we have to do? We go right back and give them a cleaning again, and give them a cleaning. But as you and I mature and get older, what do we realize? I play in the mud once, and once I get clean, I don't go in the mud again. And then eventually, as we get older, we avoid the mud. And we avoid those different things. It's the same thing in the Christian life. Listen to this. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Something's changed. Something in a relationship with God has gotten even better now that we're saved. Because now it's not just there's this incredibly powerful being that's up in the far, far away distance that now has been appeased of his wrath and is not going to judge us and kill us anymore because he's gone and he's paid the penalty for us. And now, yes, he's given us the Holy Spirit, so now we can be these good, obedient uh, robots. But something in the relationship has changed. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, we're sons of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. What it's saying now is that our relationship with God is completely different. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now this is interesting. Because what it's saying is that when we got saved, something's changed. Anybody who's been created by God is not God's child. That that's just, it's just a, a fake thing that sounds really good in books and TV and things that we grew up with. No, we're created by God. You're creation. The only people are sons of God are people that God has adopted as his own. You run that in the book of Galatians. When we respond in faith to Christ, he forgives us, forgives us of our sins, cleanses us, puts his Holy Spirit within us, and adoption proceeding happened. And God went and took an individual who was parentless, as a slave to sin, a hot mess, and he came over and said, I'm going to adopt you as my own. And he goes and he adopts us, and now the relationship has changed, and now we are his child, and he, he is now our father, a father who loves, who cares, who's there for us. But also this father does something else. What do, what do parents oftentimes lead to their children when they pass away? They leave an inheritance. They, they give something as a result of that relationship because now they're tied together. They're blood. They're familial. He says, now, if we're God's children, then we're also his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Well, what did Christ get after he died and rose again from the dead? He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and now the Father said, all this is yours. He put every power, dominion, and authority under his feet. Now it all belongs to him, and Christ never, he, he lives forever. There's no longer have any sway over him. There's not, he is now free from all of those things. That is a picture for you and I because now we also have that same inheritance. Where Christ is, there we're going to be also. What did Jesus say? 
in that part in uh, John chapter 14, before he talks about the Spirit, at the beginning of the chapter, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. If we're not so, I would have told you. My father's house, there's many mansions, or there's many new dwelling places. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Why? Because we're family. Because we're brothers. And where I am, you need to be. Why? Because we both have one father. And that's God the Father. That's our inheritance. But there's something else to our inheritance, and this is important. So this. Verse 17, now for children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now we share in his sufferings to the fact that sin, our sin has been put to his account. And also just as sin was put to his account, also when he rose again from the dead and was glorified by God. So also that is a, a process that we are going to be able to enjoy also one day. But... We have this incredible privilege when we're saved of being forgiven and having his peace and his joy, but we've also been given this wonderful privilege of suffering for his name. If our Savior suffered, it's assumed that we're going to suffer. Now, for this early church, they actually are going through true suffering. And it's actually going to get worse not many decades after this time that this is written. It's going to get even worse in the Roman Empire for this church. Look what he says in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that, be, that will be revealed in us. Now, this is for a church that's going to be going through persecution and suffering and things that are going to be very bad, not just the, the typical things that we have day in and day out that bother us or that are, 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 are struggles that we have individually, but something corporately that that church is going to go through where he's saying to them, hey, our present sufferings that we're going through, whether it be we're going through it or communally, it's not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. And that was true for the believers that were getting their heads chopped out not too long after this. That's true for Paul as he's getting shipwrecked and going through all the things he's going through. He's saying, my presence and sufferings are worth comparing with what we have coming to us. Again, mind is not seen, you know, uh, eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor has been conceived in the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Part of that was talking about the Holy Spirit of God living within us. And the other part is we have no idea what it's going to be after this. We can only imagine what it's going to be like. And even what we imagine, it's not even going to come close. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's so worth it. It has so much value that God himself had to pay the penalty for it to secure it for us. And what kind of value can you put to that? Priceless. You can't even conceive of the value of it. Look at verse 19. This is interesting. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now he's going to start. You're going to see as we get through the end of Romans chapter 8 next week um, that the importance of our salvation, he adds more and more weight to how big of a deal it is. Sadly, for you and I, it's become so common. Right? We We go to the church, we go forward, we give our life to Christ, we're now saved, we experience salvation, and then we just enter into normal, everyday, American life, middle class, lower middle class lifestyle, whatever, we're doing our thing, trying to make it, staying busy and all those types of things, and then we kind of work for our life, and it's kind of like, eh, okay, you know, day in, day out, same old grind, life wearies us, we get tired, we get bothered, 
we get frustrated, you know, we feel like we're put into a vice and all that type of stuff. And then we have these little periods of spiritual highs and things like that. But when we read through what Paul's saying about what it means, what we have, like I said many times before, when we get to heaven, I think the Old Testament saints are going to come running to us and say, what in the world was it like? I mean, it must have been incredible. I mean, I remember when the, the spirit was living in the temple and only the priest could go in. You're telling me it was living in you? Like inside of you? That must have, I mean, were you glowing? It must have been, I mean, Moses' face was glowing. He had to veil it when he just saw God's presence, but that presence was living inside of you? I mean, you must have been like just perfect. It must have been incredible. I mean, you must have said no to every sin that there was. You must have been in communion with God all the time. He must have done incredible power and things like that displayed in your life. You must have been like living heaven on earth in each and every one of your homes. But, like the Israelites, oh yeah, the temple's been there for like hundreds of years. It's beautiful. I know it's kind of got some cobwebs now. It's actually pretty dirty. We actually lost the law in there. We like lost the book. It was in there and they, they sweeped it off one day and got all the dust off of it. And one of the kings found it after a few hundred years. But, you know, but it, we're used to it. And the whole time, God's very presence, the creator of the universe, is right there. And no one's taking advantage of it. And for you and I, creation, every bird that's flying in the bayou, every bird that hopefully goes in my little bird feeder there, <laughs> every bear in the woods right now, every fish in the water, every, you know, every deer, all of it is waiting in eager expectation for you and I to be revealed. Because when we're revealed, that's when God has come back to rule and to reign. I actually am a big fan of thinking that resurrection means resurrection of everything in the past, finally being free. Would that be kind of a cool picture? Purely speculation, but I think it's a neat picture. Mm -hmm. Because creation itself is saying, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of the extreme heat, the extreme cold, no rain, a lot of rain, flooding, hurricane, all these types of things. Every animal that's out there having to even eat each other and all that type of stuff. Creation is waiting in eager expectation for us to be revealed. What does it say? Verse 20. For creation was subjected to futility. Some say frustration, but futility. What is futility? Meaninglessness. What could be Ecclesiastes? Why does it all seem so meaningless? Because that was part of God's judgment. Because what's the point? A plant grows. It flowers. You ever see those daylilies that come up in the Easter time? we got one right there. It comes up and it blooms for a day. Maybe two days. It's beautiful. It's like, wow, look at that amazing thing. The next day, the flower's on the ground and the plant dies. we got to wait another year. For what? Bro, there's some beauty in it. There's some power of God's blessing there. But that's not right. Something's wrong with that. That kind of beauty and that kind of complexity should just be blooming and exploding all over the place. There's a futility to everything going on in creation. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. What is it saying about the earth God's created at the end times? Yes, he comes and he judges, but what do we find that happens at the very end? Heaven and earth come together. The new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and resides on earth, and now God resides with his people. I really I believe he is going to restore all of creation in an incredible way. 
Creation itself, all of the animal kingdom is waiting for you and I to be revealed because who caused the issue to begin with? You and I, they were doing just fine. We came on the scene and we wanted one piece of food. We wanted one piece of cake, right? And the whole thing got messed up and the rebellion and all of creation has been suffering under our dominion since that point in time. Creation itself can't wait for you and I to be revealed. What if Croatia could just see a little bit of the Holy Spirit of God living within us each and every day? Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to be weird, but what if we actually lived a little bit like we were actually supposed to live? Because creation is busting at the seams until Christ comes back. I can't, we need this to come back because then it's finally going to be fixed. You and I already have the first fruits of that. That's the part of the value. Creation is waiting for it. Look at this. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What does that mean, groaning as in the pains of childbirth? Earthquake. Hurricane. Everything that you see unstable in the world and everything that creation does where you can look and say, how could something so beautiful, incredibly be so broken and violent? Right? Those are That's groaning. That's like childbirth coming out. There's something going on. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. What are we all waiting for? There's sometimes in the believer's life where we get sick and tired of everything that's going on around us, right? Hopefully it's not just because we're cantankerous because we're getting older, right? We're sick of things. Part of that's that. But the other part of it should be because we're sick of all the wickedness going on. And we also know there's no political solution. There's no legal solution, right? I can't even build a gun big enough to scare anybody into a solution. The solution is we need Christ to come back. That's the solution. He needs to redeem this whole world from the decay that's going on. But why doesn't he just come back? It's because he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We ourselves who have the spirit, first fruits of the Holy Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies so that we're done with this struggle between the influence of sin and the influence of the Holy Spirit. So we're done having to feel like we're, we're fighting back and forth with it. For in this hope, we were saved. And this idea of hope is a certain expectation. It's not something you're just hoping you win the lottery, but it's, it's a for sure thing. You're just hoping for it to come sooner. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Obviously, we're waiting for it. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And I think that's the thing that you and I have to maybe come to terms with and peace with. It's a certainty. Jesus is coming back. Absolutely certain. If we put our faith in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. A fact. Absolutely certain. We don't completely even recognize or understand the power of God that lives within us, that's available to us as we live this Christian life. That's absolutely certain. We, we don't have a full grasp on it. We're waiting for God to come back and for him to, to save everything and to, to finish everything so we can be fully redeemed and have everything done so we can be done with, with suffering and, and sin and all those types of things. That's something that we're waiting for. What God says is this. I want you to wait, and I want you to be faithful, and I want you to be patient. 
if he's asked us to wait, right, which is like the worst thing in the world in my mind, I hate waiting, right? I don't know how many patient people we have here, but get me on the road, on the freeway, gone, right? I, I It's a hard time being patient, very hard time waiting. But when you think back, when you think about with your own children, you're saying, just wait, just wait, it's coming, just be patient, just be patient. We usually say to wait and be patient because we know that they can handle it. We know that everything around them is right for them to do it. And we know something very certain is going to happen. Just wait for it. It's going to happen. God's saying for you and I to wait patiently. No matter what suffering comes, just wait. I've given you my Holy Spirit. You have everything that you need. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I've given you all the power that you need. What I need you to do is live according to the Spirit. I get it, you're groaning. You can see the world groaning around you. Just wait for it patiently. And we're going to find out next week that even helps us when we don't know what to pray for. It helps us even realize how big our salvation is because it even predates everything and all the wonderful things that are going to come to us now because of our salvation. And then as we get through further through Romans, it's going to let us know, now based on all that, what are some practical things that we could do in our lives going forward? Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your work. I pray, Father, that it does its uh, work in our hearts and our lives. I pray that as we hopefully think through what we've read uh, the rest of this day or the rest of this week, Lord, that your word will, uh, will be the things that come through our mind and, and stick, and that uh, we'll meditate on those things, Lord. And we'll be encouraged to go back and read your word for ourselves. I pray, Father, that uh, we'll take it your word, Lord, that we'll trust you, that we'll be patient uh, and wait on you. And we just uh, pray, Father, that uh, continue to bless the rest of our week and help us be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.